1: With August now in full swing, it's just a matter of time before the tropics start to stir and the risks start to rise for communities. Risk Management Solutions is tackling and transforming the catastrophe risk industry, including hurricane risk. RMS Wind is a tool that is crucial to understanding as well as dealing with tropical cyclone risk. Joining me today are Mike Kozar and Robert Muir Wood of RMS. Kozar is the lead on all their H-Wind products and Muir Wood has been with RMS over 18 years and is the Chief Research Officer. Thank you both for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a really important topic and one that may be a little foreign to some of the Weather Geeks listeners. So before we dive into the complexities of the tropical cyclone risk and catastrophe risk modeling, I have to ask you the questions that I ask every single Weather Geeks guest. And then maybe it doesn't apply, and then definitely calibrate me if it doesn't. And I'll start with you, Mike. How did you become a Weather Geek?
2: Um, back in probably about fifth grade, um, I started paying attention to uh, the tropics and uh you know would tune into the weather channel for the tropical update uh, 10 past the hour um setting my alarm in the morning to to watch it um that was the 98 hurricane season with uh, mitch uh, most notably and uh kind of became obsessed with the the power of uh, of you know, bad weather, um, despite being terrified of it uh, at a much earlier age. So kind of became obsessed with hurricanes and knew that that was a career I wanted to go in and went through, uh, you know, college uh, with the single-minded goal to get degrees in meteorology. And uh, am here with RMS today. Now, Mike, just a little bit
1: of his background, he's the lead modeler at RMS. Uh, he has a focus on tropical meteorology computer programming on R&D. Uh, he and is involved in projects related to forecasting hurricane winds, and he's leading the development of a newly launched hurricane forecast system. He has his Ph.D. from Florida State University. Go Knowles, as anyone that listens to this podcast knows, I'm a triple know myself and a master's and bachelor's degree from Penn State University as well. Now, our our other guest, Robert, you you have a degree or two uh, from Cambridge University, a degree in natural sciences and a PhD in earth sciences from Cambridge University as well. And you serve as the chief research officer at RMS, uh, working to enhance natural catastrophe modeling, as well as identifying models for new areas of risk and so forth. So is it appropriate for me to ask you the question? How did you become a weather geek or? Um... Well, I would I would I would um, challenge that term a little bit. I would claim to be a
0: catastrophe
1: geek. We'll it's take totally it. <laughs> how, did, how did How on... did you become a catastrophe geek?
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I became a catastrophe geek originally through um, through working on earthquakes. In fact, actually looking at how do you how do you assess what is the probability of earthquakes happening in a particular region? How do you how do you. Uh, if you like expand out, you know we, we have a historical record which may go back hundred or two hundred years. but that's actually not enough to tell us everything that can happen. So we have to make a virtual history, if you like, extending back maybe fifty thousand years. And the same applies. the same applies to earthquakes that it does to to windstorm or flood or hurricane. It's just the raw material, the building blocks are different the basic underlying um, philosophy is the same and it's that which interests me is how do you how do you come across a new peril how do you make a, a synthetic history how do you model the risk
1: and some of some of Robert's recent work includes focusing on identifying potential location and consequences of magnitude nine earthquakes around the world. love to hear a little bit more about that. He was also the lead author for the 2007 IPCC report, fourth assessment report and 2011 IPC special report on extremes according to my notes. yeah I'm I, you know I think this is really a great conversation setting up here i I think the listeners now have a good sense of who we're talking with. Why don't one of you just give us a little background on what RMS is as a company? So uh, I I suspect many people listening may not be familiar with exactly what the company does, Uh, but I just want a little background and maybe we'll, you know, Robert, since you've perhaps been with the company a bit longer, tell us about who RMS is and then we'll dive more into the H-Win.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, we, we, um, Leaders worldwide in catastrophe risk modeling, which which and and across a very wide range of perils. So we're talking about hurricane today, uh, but equally for earthquake or extratropical cyclone or for severe convective storm or flood or even man-made perils. We model cyber risk. We model terrorism. In fact, and so we we uh, our clients are largely, although not not entirely, they are. Insurance and reinsurance companies of the world who want to know how do you put a price on risk if you're trying to sell yourself, sell someone a flood policy or an earthquake policy or a hurricane policy? What is the what is the what is the cost you, sh- you should apply to that probability that an extreme event will come and hit you one day? And our models solve this problem about identifying what is that the underlying reality of the cost of risk um, against a very wide range of potential catastrophes. And as I say, we do it across a very wide range of perils. We have more than a 1,000 people worldwide who work on, on this mission, um, and among them are many real specialists, meteorologists, climatologists, statisticians. We, we really are leaders in in understanding the science of risk, if you like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a question comes to mind before I, I, I jump over to Mike. Would you say that the company, and I think you alluded to this somewhat, would you say as climate change and extreme weather associated with climate change, as we know from the attribution studies, would you say that your company has evolved to focus more on things like hurricanes and floods over the years, or is it was it really always a part of the portfolio?
0: Well, I mean, we we have we have started focusing on developing risk models for the future. So our clients, our insurance clients, they, they typically write policies that only run for one year or maybe three years. But increasingly, you know, we can see, if we're looking at wildfire in California or floods in many countries, the risk is changing. And so we have now set out a mission to actually model future risk at five-year intervals all the way to 2100 for, for various potential Trajectories of how the future is going to evolve, and and, and you know, increasingly we are working with with companies that want to get this perspective on future risk. Again, you know, we we want to be the absolute leaders in 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 how you understand and measure and quantify this future risk information.
1: Mike, you lead all H win products at RMA uh, RMS. Um, One question I have before I ask you the original question that I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, can you give viewers and listeners a glimpse into the science behind H-WIND? But before I ask you that question, um, we heard Robert talking about models. Now, people that listen to weather geeks are likely familiar with models like the ECMWF uh, Euro model or the American GFS, these physical models solving the navier or Stokes equations and so forth. I suspect that's not what we mean when we're talking about models in the context of risk modeling. So could you give us a quick one-on-one on, on the differences between, because we, you know, I always try to establish the sort of, in our different fields, we use models. And I, I know this is a professor at the University of Georgia. When I'm talking to ecologists or to statisticians, the type of models I'm talking about as a meteorologist are very different from the types of models. So give us a little 101 on on the difference between the two modeling frameworks.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, my background's uh, in meteorology. That's where I got all of my degrees. So I'm kind of uh, was in that boat that you described when uh, I was coming out of school. Everything was, you know, the geophysical uh, models or the statistical models intending on predicting real-time hurricane um, activity, whereas uh, many of these are parametric um, models where we have large stochastic sets of Thousands or hundreds of thousands um, of events, um, and you know, Roberts obviously uh, worked with uh, with them uh, a bit more closely than I have um, on the H one team. But um, and he accurately described that you know the whole purpose is to have a a long history so that um, clients can kind of assess how much um, what the risks to their portfolios are um, for any given hazard um, that may occur. So let's specifically now talk about H-Wind.
1: Tell us what the H-Wind suite of products is, why you have it, and uh, why you think it's uh, valuable for your clients.
2: Mm-hmm. So HWIND actually originated um, in NOAA, um, where uh, Mark Powell, who is a re- research scientist at the Hurricane Research Division, um, developed it. Um, the general purpose of it as it was initially um, designed, was to essentially take all the observations from the brave hurricane hunters, um, from the surface observations, from satellites, and kind of be able to aggregate it and um, come up with a continuous objective wind field analysis, um, not just like showing the maximum intensity of the storm, but the overall storm structure, because very few people obviously experience the maximum sustained winds of a storm so understanding the full breadth of that wind field how much energy it has the size the shape of it um, and being able to look at that in near real time was something that was uh, was valuable Um, we joined rms in 2015 and uh, since then we have uh, products that look at not only the current picture for situational awareness but what has happened in the past we put together what we call footprints where you combine what has happened or what is happening now with what has happened in the past, put together essentially a maximum wind swath. So you can kind of look at the lifetime of a storm and see what the peak wind was at any given location along the track of the storm, um, which is is quite useful for for some of our clients. And then uh, more recently in 2019, we launched a product that is designed to not only look into the past and the current, but look into the future um, with our forecasting products. So much like the snapshot and footprint products, which focus on observation data and trying to get as much of it as we can and combining it into a cohesive picture, um, the forecasts focus on some of those numerical weather prediction models and statistical weather prediction models that we were kind of alluding to earlier and try and put together a um, full probabilistic view of where we think the, uh, the what the, we what we think the hurricane risks will be um, in the future, um, offering track guidance, um, you know, hazard guidance, and uh, and even uh, potentially how much loss might occur um, if the storm were to make landfall in various different locations. <laughs>
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Mike Kozar and Robert Muir Wood from RMS. And we're talking about RMS's h product and more generally risk management and catastrophe risk modeling in the industry as a whole. And I want to kind of come back to Robert now. Um, do you, and as I was listening, honestly, to Mike's answer in the last segment, things like artificial intelligence came to mind, machine learning and so forth, I guess for either of you, but I'll start with Robert. Is this type of modeling that you do for catastrophe risk, is that something that is going to, or certainly perhaps already does take advantage of the emergence of artificial intelligence uh, capabilities? Well,
0: I mean, the answer is that um, in, 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 whatever area it, it, it can be helpful, we will be using it. I mean as, as I mean I can give you one example of where AI is in, important. I mean um, as, as Mike has described, in, in a way we, we're providing three perspectives on on the understanding of what of, of risk. We're, we are providing a perspective of um, of the generic risk, the, the risk if you like over the next year or 10 years as to that hurricanes might hit you we're providing uh, information on an, on an event which is already happening but has yet to maybe make landfall as Mike describes it where we're looking at what is, what is the maximum wind speed along the path of the storm. and we're also providing a final footprint of what has happened as the event has made landfall because our client our clients our clients are not interested in wind speeds. they're interested in, in what is the amount of damage and how much is that going to turn into insurance loss. And they want us to be as fast as possible because you know, whoever is dealing with this issue, their boss or the manager of the company is going to want to know how much money have we lost. I need to tell my shareholders. You know, I need to tell them within a, within a few days. And so we are we, we put a very significant number of resources on working on that problem to identify what is the impact. And actually, AI is something we, we use for actually evaluating and how to measure that that amount of damage and loss. We will use imagery data, satellite imagery, aerial imagery of, of the area which has been impacted by the latest storm. And we will to try and interpret that, that evidence of, for example, damaged roofs or, or ev- evidence for whatever is gonna cause insurance loss and aggregate that, that altogether in the shortest period of time. So within a day or two or three, after um, a significant hurricane landfall, we need to be able to come up with a a comprehensive perspective on actually what has happened and provide that footprint to our clients so they can use it to measure what their own loss is gonna be and the uncertainty on that loss. And that is something that's just one area of many where AI is is already important to how how, how we do our business.
1: I want to talk to Mike because a question came to mind as I was looking at your background, Mike, I know you are an operational meteorologist at the National Weather Service and then Penn State's campus weather service as well. And so you certainly know the challenges of conveying risk to the public. Um, As I was listening to Robert, it sounds like the deliverable or product, if you will, for your clients is tailored in some ways to their needs. But I want to get both of your thoughts and I'll start with Mike. Uh, here in the U.S., for example, there's been a discussion in recent years about whether the Saffir-Simpson scale is the proper scale for warning for the full suite of risk associated with a hurricane, for example. Uh, there's quite It's a wind scale. It was always designed to, be, to, designed to be a wind scale, but there are other hazards, flooding and tornadoes and so forth associated. So what do you feel, Mike, is the most challenging aspect of conveying hurricane wind forecast or hurricane wind forecasting in general. And then the second question is, uh, based on your experience with RMS now, are are there things that you've learned that perhaps could be transferable to broader communicating to the public about hurricane risk?
2: Sure. Um, to kind of answer um, both questions at the same time, um, I feel like the best way to approach it since this is an imperfect science that we work in is to describe it in probabilistic terms because everything there's a probability of, of outcomes um, and sometimes it's not all can um, kind of overlying a single a single outcome. Like going back to, I think it was Hurricane Joaquin. You had a possibility that it goes out to sea, a possibility that it heads to uh, heads into the United States. So, um, trying to assess the probabilistic outcomes and kind of communicate the likelihood of each of those outcomes actually occurring. Um, and explaining the uncertainty to um to the community is obviously a huge challenge one that the hurricane center and the national weather service deal with on on a daily basis and are making strides to attempt to improve it but i i would definitely stress as much probabilistic guidance that can be communicated is is best, but obviously there are challenges in communicating um, probabilistic outcomes. There's a reason why the Saffir-Simpson scale is still so common because it's a simple a simple number, and for all its faults, it can be communicated very easily, even if not everyone understands what it actually means.
1: And you you hit on something very important because we definitely use probabilistic frameworks and weather uh, as as well uh, with. Things like the percent chance of rain or the hurricane cone of uncertainty, which, uh, as we both know, or as we all three know, uh, can be challenging. I I see all the time. I I firmly believe that a good portion of people don't really understand what the meteorologist means when they say a 30 percent chance of rain today. And I have seen instances where people believe that if the hurricane didn't go down the exact center of the cone that's issued uh, the forecast was wrong, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I want to come to Robert, because you mentioned your your heritage, your background was in earthquakes, essentially, but you also deal with a, a large suite of natural hazards and disasters. Is that probabilistic framework that Mike just talked about, is that common in other sort of areas of risk Management and disaster management as well, say earthquakes or a volcanic eruption are are are, are the deliverables uh, probabilistic.
0: Yeah, I mean the answer is yes. I mean the, the the nature of the problem is actually very much the same, which is why I'm sort of interested in looking across different perils. Um, and but but in, in each case there are going to be inherent complexities. I mean one feature of hurricane is is quite a high frequency peril, so we learn a lot about. These complexities. I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example of some of the complexities we have to handle. I mean, a storm may be undergoing an eye wall replacement cycle at landfall. We've got to try and capture that in, in estimating what is the impact on the ground. The storm, as it goes further north, it it, it I think about fifty percent of the time it will start transitioning into an extratropical cyclone. That brings new classes of 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 um, complexity. We think about Superstorm Sandy, you know, which which where Two storms had morphed together and made made an even larger one. So those are kind of complexities we have to include. And also, wind is only one of the perils. The other is flood, which is really critical. So we have to model footprints of the storm surge impact of a given hurricane and the inland flooding. I mean, you you have events like Harvey hitting Houston, where you know the almost all the damage was caused by the flooding and not by the the wind we have to capture that provide detailed footprints that are sort of building resolution and give them to our clients so they can use that to est- estimate the uh, the impact so um i mean those, those are just examples of what is generic about the problem of catastrophe modeling and then what is much more specific about the particular features of the peril we 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 have in 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 question here which you Today is going to be all about hurricane.
1: I want to stay with you here, Robert, for a moment because in in the introduction, I talked about some of your work with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. So it it begs the question, and you you alluded to this earlier. Uh, climate is changing. Clearly, we understand that. I think that that we've the ship has sailed on that. Even though there may be a small pocket of folks out there that would sort of be contrary to that perspective, I think we've kind of moved beyond that. How do you account for this current and emerging generation of weather-related hazards associated with climate change in, in your risk uh, assessments and modeling?
0: Well, I mean, that's 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 a great question. I mean, in, you know, once upon a time we could simply use a long a long baseline of history and say that you know, nothing is changing. That baseline of history tells us about what is the activity today. We we believe for a number of key perils. And is no longer safe. Um, you know, we have some perils where the change is happening faster than others, where there's a, a clearer signal of climate change. I mean, it, uh, perils like California wildfire and some some aspects of flood and maybe around around hurricane int- uh, extreme intensity. There's already some some suggestion in attribution studies of a of a signature. In in which case. You know, our clients are writing risk um, today and for next year or the next three years so they want us to do the best job we can in estimating what what is the, the state if you like of the of the hazard today or in the next year and that um you know, that is a challenge which we, we try and rise to it but we recommend our clients when they are when they are taking our best perspective on current risk they also start to taking a look forward we recommend they look at our estimation of what the, that, that particular peril is going to be like in 2030, in 2035, just to give them an idea of, of how change is happening. And maybe, maybe, you know, we have a situation in California wildfire where change seems to be happening faster than, than the original models indicated. And, you know, it's important that, that if you're writing wildfire insurance in California, you are thinking ahead. You're not simply looking backwards in time as, how you, as to how you estimate the risk.
1: Yeah, and for those listening, I hope you're sort of making the connections to the so what, because that's always so important to me when we talk about these things, so what? And the so what is, you You just heard Robert talk about the implications for the insurance and reinsurance industries, and those things matter to all of us in, in, in this regard. I'm gonna take one quick break, and then we'll come back with two big questions for our, our guests. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Mike Kozar and Robert Muir Wood from RMS. Mike, I'm looking at the title of your dissertation, uh, Prediction of Integrated Kinetic Energy in Atlantic Tropical Cyclones. Now, that's some pretty weather geeky stuff there, and I love it. Um, it tells me that you know a little bit about prediction of tropical cyclones in this integrated k- kinetic energy Ike as well. So one, tell us a little bit about what that is, because I'm curious and I know you're and I, I actually know, but I know our listeners may be curious. And then tell us what you foresee as the future of hurricane forecasting in the next five to 10 years.
2: Sure. So um, Integrated Kinetic Energy, or as you said, IKE, um, was a metric developed by Mark Powell at the Hurricane Research Division, who uh, was stationed at FSU while I was um, getting my PhD. So I worked with him and my advisor, um, Dr. Vasu Misra, to um, put together a way to forecast IKE, um, which for the listeners, IKE is kind of going back to the Saffir-Simpson scale and its uh, potential weaknesses, is meant to look at the storm's wind field as a whole, not just the max winds that are moving around the, the entire storm, but instead to look at the entire structure of the wind field, see how big the storm is, but also how strong it is. So if the storm's more intense, that's going to give you more Ike. If the storm is bigger like Hurricane Sandy, that is going to give you a lot more Ike. And in recent history, Sandy is by far the highest um, in terms of Ike. Um, so that'll be much larger value than something like Hurricane Charlie, which was a very small storm that hit uh, Florida in 2004. And so we did um, a lot of statistical um, Statistical modeling um, first with um, some multilinear regression and then with going back to the AI that we were talking about um, delved into uh, neural networks and we tried to take a look at some of the uh, synoptic and You know, climatological fields uh, similar to how uh, the hurricane model ships works and attempt to see if we could predict Ike going out five days into the future. And uh, the model was um, was generally pretty successful, blew away any sort of persistence um, benchmark or climatology benchmark that, that you could do. And I mean, I think going in that direction is certainly something that is a huge future avenue for hurricane forecasting to not skip out on max winds or Saffir-Simpson scale since it, it does have a place, but to also supplement that with a look at storm size because it does matter how big that storm is, both in terms of the amount of area that's impacted by the weather, but also the amount of storm surge and water that's pushed ashore by a large wind field compared to a small wind field is quite a bit different. And so just kind of looking at all the hazards all altogether by considering size, structure, and intensity is, is certainly a, a good path forward in addition to some of the probabilistic things we talked about um, earlier.
1: Yeah, I agreed, yeah, really interesting. I'm gonna have to dig into that paper a little bit. I've done a little hurricane research myself. I tend to focus more on the rainfall side of hurricanes, but uh, have some similar thoughts from a rainfall perspective as well. Robert, uh, you've been in this catastrophe risk industry for a while and you sort of know the ins and outs of it as, as we move forward. I, I'd love your opinion as or one of the world's experts in this area on what you feel are the biggest threats facing our communities uh, in, in years to come.
0: Well, the biggest threat is not is is not looking forward and seeing what we should be anticipating. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, there, are, there are lots of actions we can take as long as we understand what... Uh, what to expect? Whether you know, in, in Europe right now, there's been has been a big, a, a very strong heat wave over much of the summer. Um, we know that the countries have got better at actually looking after uh, the, the elderly and the and the and the sick, and actually moving them into, into cooling stations if necessary. I mean, it's it's taking the effective action. I mean, one challenge I think for the future is you know the situation we had in. 2017 in the islands of the Caribbean in, in hurricanes Burma and maria when the, the wind speeds were so intense I mean you were talking about the Saffir-Simpson scale they were sort of five plus wind speeds and they, the wind speeds were higher than the than the the winds that have been used for the building codes in those islands. and, and that's a huge challenge if we you know, if we're going to prepare effectively we've got to understand how hazards are changing. And and we've got to adjust the actions we take to uh, defend ourselves against them. I mean, that that, I think is going to be really important, whether that's hurricanes hitting Florida or um, wildfire in the Pacific Northwest. We we actually need to not simply assume that it's going to be like it was in the past. We've got to take a a forward-looking perspective.
1: There's something that I I mentioned early on in the introduction, and I said I wanted to circle back to it before we get out of here, because I mentioned that some of your recent work had identified locations for magnitude nine earthquakes. I have to admit that's something new to me, and I don't profess to know much about earthquakes. I know quite a bit about weather and climate Um, is an. Category nine or magnitude, I category, that's hurricane talk, a magnitude nine earthquake. I mean, how, how common is that? Or is that a theoretical construct? Or Tell me a little bit more about magnitude nine earthquakes.
0: Okay, well, you, 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 you'll you definitely understand that I'm not a weather geek when I can talk about magnitude nine earthquakes. But uh, I mean, the, the answer is that um, in, in 2004, we had the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, which kills something like 300,000 people. And that was that was in fact a magnitude nine earthquake occurring in a place where no scientist up to that point had said that this is a likely outcome. Then in two thousand and eleven, we had a magnitude nine earthquake off the Pacific coast of Japan, which caused the meltdowns of four, three reactors at Fukushima because again it had not been allowed for in the estimation of the of the hazard of that region. They assumed such earthquakes couldn't occur. And at RMS, I mean I've, I have led a campaign. To make sure that in our risk models we include the likelihood of earthquakes of that size wherever there's a possibility they could occur they they can't occur just anywhere and we know the locations tectonically where they could occur and in the past people have sort of said i don't think you can get a bigger than magnitude eight here and we think there are a number of areas where you can get a magnitude nine i mean for the us the the principal concern is the pacific northwest along the coast of northern California, Oregon, Washington State, and Vancouver Island, where we know there has been, in the year 1700, so 300 years ago, there was a magnitude 9 earthquake along that coastline, which which was extremely destructive and sent a tsunami across the whole Pacific. One day that will occur again. And it's important in our understanding of risk that that we, we have a good, clear idea of what has the potential to happen then we can take the action against it then we can prepare people evacuations building codes etc but we first of all have to face up to what is possible
1: and and that thank you for that discussion and mike that reminds me of some discussions that I've heard bouncing around in media and social media. And I don't know if I've seen it in the peer review literature on category six hurricanes, this sort of theoretical sort of limit sort of. And and I know I, you know, I teach a radar mesoscale meteorology class here at the University of Georgia. And sometimes the students are sort of surprised to learn that the EF scale actually for tornadoes goes beyond the EF5, uh, the potential, at least, even though Sort of theoretical limits. Um, what are your thoughts? Do, are, are we good with just talking about Category Five, or do you think there's this sort of super category of hurricanes emerging?
2: I mean, it, it's certainly possible, and I, I know there's a lot of good research that people are um, are working on, as, as Robert kind of hinted at that hurricanes could become more intense, whether or not a Category 6 is, is actually necessary because Category 5 storms, by definition, are essentially reducing structures to very little um, to begin with. Um, you know, I'll leave that up for the, the social scientists who, uh, who can, you know, kind of decide what is um, best for a uh, communications perspective.
1: This has been such a fascinating discussion. I have to end it here. I, I really thank both of you for joining us today on the Weather Geeks podcast. Are there any social media or websites or places that you'd like to put out there for our listeners who want to follow you or learn more about what you're up to? I
0: mean, there's, there's the, the RMS.com website, which which has lots of blogs on and on. on climate related issues I very much encourage people to have a look at rms.com because you'll sort of understand how we work on the application side of of you know, the science of meteorology or the science of climatology how we try and bring it into what, what's the implications for the impacts of those those events are going to happen
2: Okay. And
1: is there any social media presence of any kind?
2: Um, RMS does have a a Twitter account that we post a lot of the links to some of these blog articles and, um, and other interesting things that we're doing around the field.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of our listeners are very engaged in social media. So I want to make sure I got that out there if we could. Mike and Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. We still need some more Geek of the Week nominations. So if you're listening and would like to nominate someone for our Geek of the Week, this is normally the type of time of the podcast where we recognize our Geek of the Week, but we don't have one this week. And so that's where we'll end it. Again, I want to thank Mike and Robert and Shout out to Mark Powell as well. Uh, I know he's, I think, been a past uh, guest on one iteration of Weather Geeks. And so it's really been interesting to hear how that has evolved over time and how RMS is now really moving things forward in this regard. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.